want to bring a message tonight entitled, Living a Life God Blesses. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We did the uh, introduction uh, message last week. If you did not get those notes or hear that, uh, you can actually go online and hear Wednesday night now. And uh, also, there's a little link there for the notes uh, also. And so if you miss that, just uh, utilize that. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Not to be confused with the Belshazzar we'll meet in ch uh, chapter 5. Uh, that, that Belshazzar does not have... The T, the fourth letter, the T, uh, here he, it does. Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, as we will see beginning in chapter 2. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. 
Folks, the book of Daniel is going to show us what God can do with one life even that is totally and completely consecrated to Him. Sometimes people wonder if their one little life can make that much of a difference. And they might ask other questions like, how much is God really involved in the world? How much will He notice me? Will my commitment really make a difference? Now all of those questions are raised and dealt with in the book of Daniel. Now there are several themes I want you to notice from Daniel chapter 1 I've given you in your pages tonight. First of all, we'll notice throughout the book the sovereignty of God. As you looked at the outward condition of the Jews, you would have said that things looked pretty bad for them and indeed things did look bad. And you might have been led to ask the question, where's God? Where's Jehovah God, the God of the Jews? Has He left them? Has He abandoned them? Now actually God had a reason for all the bad that was going on and He was actually in charge of it. A second theme we'll notice in this chapter is the decision of an individual to obey God in a very ungodly environment. And thirdly we'll see God's reward of such a dedicated life. Now folks, this, this book has volumes to say to us uh, about, or, or to, say, any, to uh, say to any believer who might be living in a very difficult situation. Facing trials or tribulation, facing opposition. Uh, any believer who is going through a dark valley and facing very difficult choices and may be tempted to make compromises with the world. Uh, the book of Daniel is going to have a great deal to say to us about that. Now again, what we're going to see in this passage, the way God blesses a life that is consecrated to Him. The first thing I want you to notice with me is you may find yourself in situations beyond your control. Daniel found himself in the midst of a situation of national upheaval. Immediately in verse 1 we see the scene being set. Can anybody tell us what the year is as we look at verse 1? 605, yes. 606, the end of 606, 605. The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now remember there were three invasions of Judah by the Babylonians. Verse 1 is referring to the first of those three. The first of the three is when Daniel was taken captive along with these buddies of his that we've read about in this chapter. Then in 597, Nebuchadnezzar came in, the Babylonians came in once again and invaded Judah. And who in the Bible was carted off that second time? Ezekiel. And then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came in a third time and destroyed the city, destroyed the walls around the city, and destroyed the temple. But as we come to verse 1 here, it's the first of those three invasions. So it's 605 B.C. 
And again, the scene is a scene of national upheaval. They've been sowing to the wind, and now they are reaping the whirlwind. They had more than a hundred years to see what God did to Israel. Remember, Israel was the northern kingdom. They had they'd become the divided kingdom. The, the northern kingdom made up of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom made up of two tribes. The northern kingdom was Israel, sometimes referred to in the Bible as Ephraim. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. In 722, because of sin and idolatry and rebellion, God had allowed the Assyrians to come in and destroy the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. And in the rest of Old Testament history, those ten tribes don't factor in anymore. Now Judah, Israel's sister, if you will, had more than a hundred years to see that God judges sin. Judah had time to repent of her sin and rebellion and idolatry. And she had not. And so God brought the Babylonians in as a rod of judgment against the southern kingdom or Judah. I want you to notice in verse 2 it says, God gave, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar being an ungodly pagan king would have simply thought that his nation was more powerful and that he was a better general. In fact, in chapter 4, we're going to see how puffed up with pride Nebuchadnezzar was. Because he walked out on the terrace of his palace one night and he looked out over his kingdom and said, My, 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 look at me. He patted himself on the back and he said, Look at the kingdom that I've built by my might and by my power and by my wisdom. And the Bible says right then and there, God took the kingdom away from him until he acknowledged that the Most High reigns. So Nebuchadnezzar at this point thought he was doing it all. But as verse 2 shows here, it's God who gave Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Now there's another prophet in the Old Testament. Kind of had some difficulty with this. Anybody remember who that prophet would have been? Very difficult name. Long name, difficult name. Difficult to spell, not, not to say necessarily. But there was a minor prophet who had a great deal of difficulty. He said, Lord, wait a minute. You mean to tell me you're going to use an ungodly pagan nation, more ungodly than we've been, you're going to use a more ungodly nation to judge your people? And that didn't make sense to him. No. Who? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. You remember God's answer to Habakkuk? Habakkuk, don't you worry about that. Don't you think that the Babylonians are going to get away with anything? I'm going to judge them too. I'm going to bring them to an end. And indeed God did. But he said, for now Habakkuk, the Babylonians 
are an instrument in my hand to judge my people because of their sin. Now, this capture mentioned here is the fulfillment of many warnings from the prophets because of Judah's sins. Write down Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 6. That portion of Scripture uh, points out that they had ignored the, the Sabbath and the sabbatical, the sabbatical year. They had not given the land rest. And so in the 70 years of captivity, God was reclaiming the, the rest for the land that they were supposed to be given the land all along. Also, idolatry was another reason they were being judged. And then in Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet there talks about moral apostasy. Was still another reason they were going to be judged. Now what does this show us? This shows us that when we ignore the Word of God and we violate the Word of God and live outside of the boundaries of the Word of God, divine judgment is coming. God is a gracious God and a merciful God. He's the God of the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance, and aren't you glad? But there comes a time that His patience is exhausted. And he judges his people. He disciplines his people. Hebrews 12 in the New Testament talks about that. That God judges those whom he loves. Now he wasn't going to forget about his people as they were in Babylon for 70 years. Jeremiah 29 11 uh, says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God had not abandoned His people. God had not forgotten His people. But God was judging His people. When God's people turn away from God and we live according to our own devices and we rebel against God, guess what we're inviting? We're inviting judgment. And that's exactly what's happening here. And it's a testimony to us what we've just studied in the book of Galatians. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, this shall he also reap. Now Daniel found himself captured in verses 3 and 4. The Babylonians captured the cream of the crop. Now notice that verse 3 points out that these young people were from the nobility. Now the Babylonians did this for two reasons. Number one, they would use these young people as a sort of ransom to their parents to keep their parents in line. And number two, they wanted to train them, these, young, these bright young people, they wanted to make Babylonian disciples out of them and train them so that they could represent the king among the Jewish people. Where the Jewish people lived in the land of Babylon, uh, the king wouldn't have to go out to the Jews and try to rule over them uh, personally. He could use the, these children of the nobility who he had brainwashed and they could go and be his mediators to the people in captivity. So it's a policy that, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had. Now look at what verse 4 says about Daniel and his friends. It says they were without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And, to teach, uh, and they were to teach them 
uh, these uh, youths of the nobility, the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So what did Nebuchadnezzar want? He wanted the best. He wanted the best and the brightest. That tells us something about Daniel right there, doesn't it? Now, in all probability, Daniel and his friends were turned into eunuchs. Now, that's speculation, but they're put into the care of the guy who was in charge of the eunuchs. The implication of that is they were made eunuchs. Again, we're not told that directly, just indication. So Daniel's having a pretty rough time, wouldn't you say? <clears throat> Now they uh, notice, uh, oh, also 2 Kings 20, 14 to 19 refers to this process coming under the head of the eunuchs and, and becoming eunuchs. And also about Daniel and finding himself in a situation beyond his control, we could say that he was thrust into a place where he didn't want to be. Now, folks, this shows us that if God judges the land, even Christians suffer. God didn't put Daniel and his friends in a bubble and protect them from all the bad that happened. Okay? God let them go through the fire. God was with them, but they still had to go through the fire, right? Believers have not been promised an absence of trials. Jesus said, in this world you're going to have tribulation. Now, Daniel is believed at this point, Daniel's probably somewhere between 14 years of age and 17 years of age. Somewhere in there. Maybe just, he's just some believe he's just turned probably about 15. But somewhere between 14 and 17. And that's going to mean that Daniel is going to have no hope whatsoever of getting out of Babylon alive. Because as a young man knowing the scriptures, Jeremiah, prophet, had prophesied, that they were going to be there 70 years. And so Daniel must have known that he's, he's never going to go back home. He's never going to be released. But you know, God had a purpose in his life. Sometimes we don't always understand what God's up to. We don't understand where, why God has us where we are and maybe the situations we're going through, but he's got a reason. Before he can use us, he's got to refine us. You see, man's interested in what we do, but God's interested in who we are. God's interested in the heart of a man. He's interested in our character. And so God is in the process of building Daniel's character and testing the character. If God only put us around other Christians who thought and acted just the way we do, where would our ministry be? God doesn't place us always where we want to be, but where He wants us. I wonder if you've thought much lately about why you may be where you are at this stage in your life. Well, in verses 4 and 5, Daniel was invited to indulge. We could call this Operation Assimilation. Babylon was a place of wickedness. They're to be educated with the language, the literature, the culture of the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to get so accustomed to the world of the Babylonians that they forgot all about their religious upbringing. I want you to notice he even changes their names. 
gives them pagan names. Their Hebrew names meant something. Well, guess what? The pagan names meant something too. Their Hebrew names signified how they were dedicated to Jehovah God. Their new names that Nebuchadnezzar gives them reveals that the king wanted them dedicated to the Babylonian gods. So even in their names, he wants to strip away their identity. Again, Babylon was a wicked place. From Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel all the way to the book of Revelation, Babylon is always viewed in a very negative light. It became a symbol in the Word of God for all that is opposed to God. Now, Psalm 137 tells us how most of the exiles dealt with captivity. Okay, Psalm 137 says, By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there uh, those who carried us away captive asked us of a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we see, sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forgot you, old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. That's how most of them responded. A lot of them, they just kind of lost their joy and sat down and gave up. But again, Daniel's invited to look past all the bad. They're trying to make things really nice for Daniel and his three friends. All Daniel would have had to have done at this point was what? Just play along. His people might suffer. He was going to have it real good. All he had to do was play along. And hey, he was going to have a pretty good post in this new kingdom where he found himself. Right? That's what the king wanted. Just go along, operation assimilation, become a Babylonian disciple, things are going to be real nice for you. A lot of people would have succumbed to that, wouldn't they? Well, I want you to see, secondly, we need to resolve to obey God regardless of where we find ourselves. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. What did he do? He purposed in his heart to be faithful to God. Now, folks, here's where it all begins coming to light for Daniel. I'm convinced if chapter 8, uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, were not in the book of Daniel, we wouldn't have the rest of the book of Daniel. If Daniel would have caved, there wouldn't have been much of a book to write, right? You know, it's easy to make commitments when things are easy and everybody around you understands and supports you, but Daniel's situation, remember, was just the opposite. He had to go along with everything up to this point until he was faced with an issue to compromise God's word. Now remember, to eat of the king's table, to drink of the king's drink, would have meant that he had ignored all the dietary regulations of the Old Testament plus the Babylonian foods would have been dedicated to their false gods and idols. 
But I want you to notice something, though. Uh, while he was young, he obeyed God. He was a long ways away from home, but he obeyed God. He was in the minority, but he obeyed God. Even though his request, I would assume, probably could have brought him the death penalty. He obeyed God. What's that? That's faith, isn't it? And folks, again, it shows us we can't control the situations that we find ourselves in sometimes, but we can control how we react to them. Now, he resolves to avoid defilement. Think again about Daniel's character and his walk with God. <clears throat> again, I, I mentioned he's in a foreign land, away from family, and everybody that knew him, that would have been a temptation for some. Uh, and another temptation, certainly, just go along and you'll end up with one of the best jobs in the land. But by following God, he not only got the job in the king's court, but he also became God's spokesman and had influence. And we're still talking about him in the world today. He, he, he didn't, he may not only get his name, he didn't only get his name in the Babylonian Chronicles, but he got his name recorded in the Word of God. Now you judge for yourself which is better. Now folks, that shows us that while some people today may compromise their convictions in doing so, they end up losing far more than they gain. What do a lot of people do? They work for the temporal praise and approval of men and they forfeit the approval and praise of God. There, there's something deceptive, there's something twisted about thinking that the world's going to reward us better than God's going to reward us. You know? But nonetheless, around us every day, we see countless people, sometimes even Christians, compromise. Buy into the devil's lies and the world's lies. And again, they end up losing far more than they gain. And usually those who take a bold stand for their convictions, guess what? They're admired by those around them. And they end up living lives of influence to those around them. And so that tells us that God is still looking for people just like Daniel. And Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Uh, men and women who aren't ashamed to stand up for God and be counted, even though you may be the only one in the crowd, even though you may pay a high price for doing so, even though you may be ostracized or persecuted or opposed, God is still looking for men and women who will stand up and be counted. He's looking for Daniels. It's interesting in a sad way that of all the young people that were taken, here again, we're not told how many were taken, but out of all the young, I would assume maybe hundreds, even thousands were taken. There's only four that we read about here that factored into God's plan. These four and of course Ezekiel. What happened to the rest? What about them? Are we to assume they must have got in Babylon and compromised? I don't know. That's, that's speculation. Again, we're not told. It's just interesting, though, how only four here. And then in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, of course. It seems to me like five young people who were taken.
came through unscathed and still maintaining their testimony. Daniel certainly ended up with an awesome testimony and it was all because he resolved to obey God. Now folks, I love what James Montgomery Boyce says right, right here in his expositional commentary. It's not a technical commentary, an expositional commentary on Daniel. I love what he says about Daniel at this point. He says a couple of things. First of all, what Daniel did here in verse 8 to a lot of people would have have appeared to have been what? Just a small little matter. Just a small matter. But you know, it's, it's the small matters oftentimes that really define what kind of commitment we have, isn't it? And Boyce also points out how important it is for young people while they're still young like Daniel to get it right even in the small matters. What do a lot of people, what do a lot, a lot of young people do? A little compromise here in a small area, a little compromise here, a little compromise here. Pretty soon they're making some pretty big compromises. And they might lose their testimony or who knows what happens to them. And so I love how he points out here that this would have seemed to the average person like, like just a small insignificant thing but to Daniel it wasn't small and insignificant this was a test of obedience to Daniel it was a test and he passed the test in a small matter and his small matters of obedience led to bigger matters of obedience and look how God blessed him I like something else that Boyce does in, in this book here. He's talking about how not only small matters are important even when we're young, but, but what Daniel really made a commitment to do here was for holy living. And you and I are asked in Scripture for holy living. And, and what he does, he quotes a guy by the name of J.C. Ryle. You ever heard of J.C. Ryle? You've heard of him, right? A great evangelical bishop. Uh, Bishop of England years ago he wrote a, wrote a book that's now well known classic on holiness and uh, in, in Ryle's book he listed a number of reasons why just like Daniel we need to be holy in an unholy world and he says number one we must be holy because the voice of God in scripture plainly commands it Peter wrote as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. As Ryle said, this is not optional. God did not say, I would like you to live a holy life, but if you're not too excited about that particular lifestyle, don't worry about it. We'll work on something else. No, God said, Be holy because I'm holy. God commands it. Secondly, he says, we must be holy because this is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. You say, but I thought Jesus came to save us for our sins. Yes, he did. But the Bible also says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. 
and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So God's ultimate purpose in us is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and be holy. Thirdly, Ryle says we must be holy because this is the only sound evidence that we have saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How's this so? Well, James in his letter speaks of two kinds of faith. A living, saving faith and a dead faith that saves no one's. The devils have a dead faith. That is, they believe there's a God, that Jesus is his son sent to save his people, but they don't trust him personally. They don't live for him. A living faith does live for him and therefore shows itself in good works. That's why James says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So holiness is sound evidence that we've really been converted. John talks about that in 1 John too, right? John says, he's light and in him is no darkness. If we say with our lips that we know him and yet we walk continuously in darkness, we lie. We don't know God. So holiness and a desire for holiness in a Christian's life is actually evidence that you've been saved. Well, several other things that he mentions here. And I won't go into those, but if you have that, if you have that book, there's a nice section that Boyce quotes Ryle on. Holy living. And that's essentially what Daniel's doing at a young age in small matters. Daniel's a, he's an impressive character, isn't he, because of that. We have a lot to learn from him. Well, thirdly, such resolve results in blessing and influence. Look at verses 17 and following. What did God do for him? It says God gave them learning and all skill and literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God gave them wisdom. God did this. Verse 12 and verse 21 points out also that God gave them influence. Influence. Daniel inspired his friends. He stepped forward. He became the leader. They responded. Look at the influence they, they had, ended up having. Daniel ended up being an advisor to kings. All the kings of Babylon all the way down to when, Cyrus, when the Persians defeated the Babylonians and took over and Cyrus issued the decree that they could go home. All the way down to Cyrus, Daniel influenced kings. That's impressive, folks. That's very impressive. Nebuchadnezzar came and went. Belshazzar came and went. Darius came and went. Cyrus showed up on the scene, and guess who's still there? Daniel's still there, and he's still God's man. Here was a man in the worst possible circumstances, and yet he never came. As far as we know, he never caved. He never compromised. And again, that's impressive. And it certainly shows how the devil is a liar, right? The devil says today, oh, if you, if you want to get ahead, what do you need to do? You need to cut corners and cheat and compromise. 
a cheap lie. Daniel wouldn't cut corners and cheat and compromise. He stayed true to God and God blessed him. And so how are we doing even in small matters? We can't choose what we're going to be faced with in life always. Sometimes we find ourselves around very difficult people in very difficult circumstances. Sometimes you might find yourself in a hostile setting to Christians. Some, some things are beyond our control. We can't control that. But again, we can control how we'll respond. And in so doing, we can influence others as well. In a personal letter to Chuck Swindoll, Tim Hansel mentions a Harvard study in which they tried to discover the number one way to change lives. The number one way to change lives. Programs or this or that, they looked at all kind of different ways to change lives. You know what they discovered? Shouldn't surprise us. What's the number one way to influence people? Through modeling and, and modeling Christian character and mentoring people. Relationships, still the number one way to influence people. I told you about the story, a preacher up on the roof hammering away those shingles and a little boy down watching said, preacher, said, what you doing, son? Looking to see how an expert do, does it? Little boy said, nah, I just want to see what a preacher says when he mashes his thumb. <laughs> people are watching right and so what's some lessons out of this tonight number one make up your mind from this day forward to live for Jesus Christ make up your mind from this day forward to live for Jesus Christ I'll go back over these in a minute but I just want to go through them fast secondly make up your mind to obey God where he has planted you regardless of the cost thirdly Make up your mind to influence other Christians around you to do the same. And then lastly, make up your mind that even small areas of obedience matter. There's the first one. You on the second one by now? No? Y'all write slow, don't you? Make up your mind from this day forward to live for Jesus Christ. Make up your mind to obey God where He's planted you. Make up your mind to influence other Christians around you to do the same. Questions, comments. Anything you notice? Uh, church website. Now it's it's not on there yet, but it will be posted. I guess what Susan Lamar the notes. When's Jonathan post those? Anyway, it will it it'll be posted. All that the Wednesday night the study guides and the audio will be posted. 
Okay. Okay. And those will be on there. Okay. Questions? Comments? A eunuch? Uh, a, a male who's been castrated, I guess you could say. <laughs> Let's put it this way. He couldn't have a happy married life and produce children, okay? <laughs> I think it was the second. And then, of course, in Acts 20, he called the Ephesian elders to meet him on the beach at Miletus and said, watch out for the flock because savage wolves are going to come in after I leave and try to devour the flock. So he had all together, he, he, all together he was in Ephesus probably about three years. One of his longest stints. Mm-hmm. So he certainly had an influence among them like Daniel had. Larry? One, one person can make a huge difference for good or evil. We, we, we see that principle work both ways. Yep. Number two back up. Okay. <laughs> we sure do. Yep, everybody's got a price, it seems. You know, we're not living in Babylon like Daniel was. Mm -hmm. We're not living in Babylon. We're living in the world system. Right. And we're living in a foreign land because we've chosen to live here. Yes. Um, so we have access sure. to control. Right. And the world is constantly trying to get at us to do its will and to do its dominance. So our TV... Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the frog in the kettle concept, it happens over time most often. You know, they say, of course I've never tested it. I've I've eaten frog legs before and like frog legs. And it's true, they taste like chicken. But anyway, you throw a frog in hot boiling water, and boy, it'll jump right out. But you put in lukewarm water and just gradually cut up the heat, and you'll cook him. So the frog in the kettle concept. Just the world tries to get us a little at a time, just just a little bit here and there, and finally we get cooked by the world, don't we? Sure. Yep. Yep. 
Right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the young pastor. Yes. By the way, he's he's been freed now. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'll, uh, I'll give an illustration this weekend connected with this church at Smyrna about Polycarp. Go home and read up a little bit on the life of Polycarp. Polycarp was a, a disciple of John. John, the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. Uh, tradition says he directly discipled Polycarp. And uh, I'm going to connect all that together with Smyrna this weekend. Read about Polycarp. Okay, well let's... Hmm? Not sure about that, but he actually ended up uh, giving his life. Polycarp. They burned him at the stake. Had him out in the courtyard uh, demanding that he um, recant his faith and turn against the Christians and recant his faith in Christ and he wouldn't so they burned him at the stake hmm. well I mean there are people who die for a lie look at these radical Muslims fly planes and uh Thinking they're going to get seventy virgins. I'm not. I don't think it's seventy virgins waiting on them. Okay, but uh, you know. right. <laughs> yep. Okie dokie. Anything else? Notice how, did you notice in the text, uh, Danny, even though he was strong on convictions, he, I'm sure had he needed to be a bull in a china shop, he probably would have, but he was very diplomatic. He told the guy over the eunuch, said, hang, hang on, let's, let's just test this thing out. Just put us to a test, and then at the end of that test, you judge if we're, is healthy looking or more so than the others. He was very gracious and diplomatic, right? We don't always have to stand for convictions in a... We don't always have to be a bull in a china shop. 